Hey there. Welcome to the lounge. I'm your host Keith Farley, and whether you're having a nice march in honor of the month or springing forward in honor of the clock, we've got you covered with stories, songs, and conversations all intuitively designed to help you groove with the rhythms of the season. Our lounge today is all about taking action, moving forward, and yes, marching. Matt Almos is here to share with us a story about a layover like no other. Double Batch Daddy invite us to climb that mountain. Ruby Farley and I talk about some great action movies and one in-action movie, and we'll pair them with a simple recipe for a crispy treat that's perfect any time of year. I'll talk with Dave O and Michelle East about the unexpected path they've marched since Dave's Broadway debut was postponed by a global pandemic, and later on, we'll attempt to solve the mystery of marching bands and what they have to teach us about getting things going. So, here we are. We've got an extra hour of daylight, and that means the sun was up at a very reasonable 7:05 this morning, and it won't set until 6:59 this evening. As you can tell, we're rapidly approaching the spring equinox, where the day and the night will be exactly the same length, and then we tip over into the light half of the year, where growth is possible for anyone willing to do the work of tilling the soil and planting some seeds. March is the month for everyone. For those of you whose nose naturally gravitates toward the grindstone, March is an invitation to follow its namesake and get busy marching toward your goals. And for those who just can't sit still, it's an opportunity to spring into action with a spring in your step to spring your new plans on the world. March is equally at home with an exhortation to beware of its ides and an invitation to do some kissing. If you're Irish, March comes in like a lion and goes out like a lamb. Strawberries join the collection of apples, pears, and citrus in the produce section alongside the arrival of mushrooms and the food that's fun to fight, artichokes. If the year were a day, March would be the early hours of the morning. It's time to wake up from our long winter's nap and get going. In fact, for a long time, March was the first month of the year, and I find that fitting. It's when we start to see the trees spring forth with tender new buds. We hear the birds calling out for a mate, and the weather shows signs that the outdoors will soon be available again for hiking and biking and maybe even a swim or two. It's a much better time to start the year than the dark, cold month of January when everything is frozen and dead. March invites us to new life, and it proves that new life is possible with every bloom and bud. So we invite you to take a cue from the world around you and begin the journey of climbing that mountain and crossing that stream. No one says it'll be easy, but the only way to get where you want to go is to start moving. My heart still beats And I still got you and Though my knees grow weak I still got you And not every day I cannot see my way I looks like one of those days I'm a go anyway Catch my I 
till my heart and mind and spirit are one with yours. And not every day I can I see my way. I looks like one of those days. I'm a going away. The Spanish philosopher Jose Ortega y Gasset says, To be surprised, to wonder, is to begin to understand. You never know where you'll find wonder. Sometimes it'll surprise you, as we hear in this story from Matt Almos. He's sitting in the back of a cab, watching the industrial buildings zoom by. Ninety minutes ago, he was in a plane, 35,000 feet above the Pacific Ocean on his way to Shanghai. But then, things changed. Typhoon Chan Hom moved into Shanghai and started pummeling it with 100-mile-per-hour winds. So instead of landing in Shanghai, he's staying overnight in Tokyo and waiting for the storm to pass. The international airport is located in Narita, a smaller city that's a 60- to 90-minute drive from Tokyo. So that's where he's staying tonight, at the Narita Higashia Hotel. He's not sure he's pronouncing it correctly. He departed LAX on Friday morning. Now it's dinner time on Saturday in Narita, which means it's the middle of the night in Los Angeles, about 2 a.m. It's hard to say. He's been up for a long time. This is a business trip, and he has a big week ahead of him. Over the last five years, he's made about 25 trips to China for this project, none of the trips more critical than this one. Tomorrow, he'll be on the first plane to Shanghai. When he lands, he'll be hitting the ground running. He knows absolutely nothing about Narita, but he knows what he needs to do. He needs to get as much sleep as he possibly can tonight, as long as he can get some rest, a little food, and a nightcap in the hotel bar, he'll be ready to go tomorrow. After all these trips over the international dateline, he knows the routine that works. The cab pulls into the parking lot of the Narita Higashia Hotel. He immediately becomes concerned. The hotel is very small. In fact, one might say it looks more like a motel. It's two stories tall, rectangular, and beige. When he steps out of the cab, he's hit with an overwhelming blast of heat and humidity. He grabs his bag and moves quickly across the parking lot so he can escape to the air conditioning of the lobby. Except, there is no air conditioning in the lobby. There's no air conditioning in his room, either. It's on the second floor, so it's extra warm in there. When he goes to the bathroom, he notices that there is a sink coming out of the top of the water tank on the back of the toilet. He stares at it for a long time. Is he supposed to brush his teeth in it? This toilet sink? It's 6.30 p.m. in Narita, 2.30 a.m. in Los Angeles. He's going to need to get much more tired if he's going to fall asleep in this oven of a room. He knows what he needs to do. He goes in search of food. He steps out of the hotel, through the parking lot, and onto the sidewalk on the main drag. 
Looking down the street from the Narita Higashiya Hotel, he can't tell where he is. Is this downtown Narita or something else? Everything is two to four stories tall, and everything is beige. Nothing is in English, but why would it be? He's looking at signs that could be for stores or restaurants or offices or who knows. The only distinctive building he can make out is an A-frame painted white with thin blue vertical stripes. It has a red and white sign spinning on a pole high above it. The sign says Volks. V-O-L-K-S. Volks. Maybe it's because he's tired and hungry. Maybe the familiar silhouette of the building reminds him of an IHOP. For whatever reason, Volks is the building he gravitates towards. He pushes the glass door to enter the building and is relieved to discover it is a restaurant. The decor and the feel actually are indeed reminiscent of an IHOP. It's clean and casual, a family restaurant. It's perfect. He opts for familiarity. A sirloin steak, baked potato, a side of broccoli, and a glass of Asahi beer. The food is fine. It hits the spot. The beer hits the spot, too, so he orders another glass. Service is quick. The servers don't speak his language, but everyone navigates that gap with no issues. He sips his beer and scrolls through social media, feeling safe and comfortable, nestled inside the Volks. He checks the clock on his phone. It's 8 p.m. in Narita, which means it's now 4 a.m. in Los Angeles. He's been awake a long time now, and he's feeling it. He's tired enough and buzzed enough that maybe, just maybe, he could fall asleep in his sweatbox of a room. But as he steps back out onto the street, he's hit by a wave of heat. He needs to sleep but he knows the temperature in his room is going to be miserable. The sky is dark now, and streetlights are bathing the parking lot in pale blue. He has a choice to make. He can walk straight up the main street back to the hotel, or he can kill another hour or two by going for a walk and making himself more tired. He looks to his left and sees a road leading up a hill into what appears to be a residential area. He starts heading up the hill. As he travels farther into the neighborhood, the streets get narrower and darker. He can make out two- and three-story apartment buildings on either side of the road, sometimes a thin, modest house behind a brick wall, sometimes a parking lot. Some of the buildings have white lanterns hanging from them, The lanterns have red horizontal stripes and black Japanese script printed on them. Of course, he has no idea what the script is saying. If he had to guess, he'd say this was a working-class neighborhood, but he doesn't actually know. It's peaceful and clean, and it's quiet, until the moment that it isn't. Up ahead on the dark road, he can hear the sound of bells shaking rhythmically. Fainter than that, he hears the sound of a single voice calling out. He starts walking towards the sound. He sees a glow emanating from the street ahead. When he turns the corner, he's at a crossroads between two narrow streets. There, he sees a higher concentration of lanterns, especially around a tiny storefront on the left where an older man sits in a chair, watching the activity on the thin road beneath him. The shop has a concrete foundation that sits about three feet above the street, so the older man, maybe he's a shopkeeper, looks like he's in a place of honor, framed by the glowing lanterns. Then he starts to see the source of the sound. Dozens of men and women are shaking the bells in their hands as they walk through the narrow street towards him. They seem to be making sure the path is clear for something, but he doesn't know what it is. And then, he can start to see it. A procession of women and children, hundreds of them, emerge from the darkness. They march in two separate lines following the bell ringers. The women and children are holding on to long ropes. They're pulling something. Someone is calling out to the throng, calling out directions and encouragement to the people pulling. At least he thinks so. At the end of the day, 
He doesn't know. A small group of locals, maybe six or eight people, are standing with him watching the activity. Nobody seems to mind that he's there, and he feels grateful for that. As the women and children march past, the shopkeeper leans forward and smiles and nods. And then, from the darkness on the road ahead, something emerges, something big. It's two stories tall and fills the width of the road. It's about the size of a bus adorned with dozens of lanterns that blaze with light. As it moves forward, he can see that it appears to be made of unpainted wood, ornately carved. It looks like a parade float. It looks like a Japanese temple. He doesn't know what it is. He's never seen anything like it. This is what's attached to the ropes the women and children are holding onto. This is what they're pulling forward. As it rolls closer, he can see four men on the upper deck waving long, glowing lanterns to the rhythm of the music. He can see 12, maybe 14 musicians on the lower level playing flutes and drums. Everyone appears to be wearing traditional Japanese robes, but he doesn't know how to describe them. The procession comes to a stop in front of the shopkeeper. Eight women in matching kimonos emerge. They unfurl fans and perform a dance for the shopkeeper. The shopkeeper claps along and smiles and nods. The men on top of the float wave their lanterns to the rhythm. The dance concludes and the shopkeeper applauds and bows to the performers below. A whistle blows. Everyone grabs onto their ropes again. They pull. It takes a while, but they get the float moving again. Somehow it turns the corner in front of him, following the procession of men, women, and children into other corners of the neighborhood. He stands in awe as he watches it disappear into the dark. What did he just see? Was this a community ritual that's been passed down from generation to generation? He doesn't know. All he knows is that he feels fortunate. He walks back to the hotel bathed in the light fog of the jet lag, the Asahi beer, and the spectacle that washed over him out of nowhere like a gentle wave. He opens the door to his room. The air is warm and the mattress is hard. He's ready to sleep. It's 11 p.m. in Narita, 7 a.m. in Los Angeles. He lies on his back and closes his eyes as the drums and the flutes pulse and swirl in the corners of his mind. Then he falls asleep. Four hours later, he's wide awake. It's 3 a.m. in Narita, 11 a.m. back in Los Angeles. He's going to be working a long day, a crucial day, on two and a half hours of sleep. Not what he had hoped for. He thinks of the procession and wonders for a moment if he dreamt it. He looks at the pictures on his phone. To his surprise, it actually happened. He decides to go running. By the time he's stretched and in his running gear, it should start getting light out. He looks out the window and across the street to a patch of green grass that might lead to a running path away from the cars and the mopeds. An hour later, he's running on it. The sky on the horizon is glowing, lighting a pathway that runs along a creek and farther into a vast green meadow surrounded by hills blanketed with trees. He keeps running on empty trails as Narita slowly comes to life around him. After a few miles, he stops and breathes as the blood and the drums and the music and the lanterns and the unexpected wonder courses through his body. It's 5 a.m. in Narita and 1 p.m. in Los Angeles. He's ready to get to work. Sometimes inspiration and wonder are just around the corner, but often you need to get off the main road to find them. Keith here. 
Hope you're enjoying our lounge this month. We're on a mission to get you where you want to go with humor and heart. It's the same great stories, songs, and conversations as always, with an emphasis on finding ways to help you achieve your goals by grooving with the rhythms of the season. If you get something valuable out of this podcast, we hope you'll take a moment to share a little something with us. Head to livefromtheloungepodcast.com, click the donate button, and help us keep this podcast coming to you season after season. Thanks for listening, and thanks in advance for your generosity. Davo and his spouse Michelle East are dear friends, and I'm thrilled to introduce them to you. Dave is a composer and music director, and Michelle is a certified marriage and family therapist who specializes in animal therapy involving horses. They have two wonderful kids, and I can't think of any family I know who's done more marching in the past two years. Here's their story. I'm so glad you both are here. I remember, David, there was a period of time when I felt like I couldn't go out without seeing you go to the La Jolla Playhouse, Dave's conducting. Go to the Ovation Awards, Dave is leading the music. I went to the opening of Grand Park and you're up on a building conducting a pair of brass bands blasting out one of your arrangements. And it was like everywhere I went, there's Dave O, there's Dave O, there's Dave O. And I want you to talk a little bit about what that led you to. Um, in 2019, which led to your first move. And then Michelle, I want to talk to you about the decision-making process that you had to go through um, in order to go along with that. Sure. So I had the highly unlikely career of a full-time professional musical director in the musical theater living in Los Angeles. Uh, and it was a particular time when there was enough going on that that was able to work for me and our family. And uh, the work was really exciting and, and, and led always to bigger and better things. And so naturally, it led to some roads that were away from L.A. Um, and I got invited to be the musical director for uh, a musical called Mr. Saturday Night, uh, which uh, is stars and is co-written by Billy Crystal, uh, based on his movie from the 1990s. Uh, and uh, the creative team is wonderful, and it includes the composer Jason Robert Brown, who's a longtime friend and collaborator of mine. Starting in 2017, uh, we did a few workshops here and there. And then uh, by 2019, the production was ready to move forward with a Broadway run. We were scheduled to open at the Nederlander Theater and I believe it was February of 2020. We as a family pulled up our roots in Los Angeles and moved across the country to the suburbs of New York in Westport, Connecticut, uh, where we were getting ready for the, for the show to happen. And how old were your kids at that time? Caleb would have been 19. He was, uh, at that point, already, uh, I believe, a second-year student at Berklee College of Music in Boston. Uh, and Archer uh, would have been uh, 13. Michelle, what was the, the decision-making process like for you? You know, we've been doing this bi-coastal thing for probably a decade now, where it's on a few months, off a few months. And, you know, we knew how to do that. It's not ideal, but we always felt so lucky that he was having this career and I was running the show and I was pretty good at running the show behind the scenes. And so it just seemed like, well, if we're going to do this, if we're going to make this happen, it was an ideal time in both of the kids' lives. I mean, the recipe looked great. We sort of made a big deal out of it. We showed up and we had, you know, our house ready for us. And it was all part of the adventure. Then the adventure <laughs> turns, doesn't it? And then <laughs> scheduled to open February 2020. I think that anybody who's, you know, been breathing for the last two years knows what happened in February 2020. Talk a little bit about the impact of that and how that changed your plans and what your next steps were. It felt like it all happened within a week. And Dave and I had just come out to L.A. for a week for, for some of his work. I think that was with Bronco Billy. We went to the ovations. We were like seeing everybody. This is how we thought it was going to be. We were going to be bi-coastal, but only visiting L.A. Archer came home on the school bus. 
And he texted me on the bus. He said, the school shut down. And then I think within two days, Dave was, they, they put him on a red eye back. So for us, it felt all encompassing very quickly. And it was very frightening, very fast. As soon as we actually got to Connecticut, we got word that the February opening had been, been postponed. It was originally postponed for scheduling reasons that didn't have anything to do with COVID. And then when everything shut down, it was, you know, it, one needn't have even asked. It, it, we, we knew it was clear that, that uh, Mr. Saturday Night was going to get postponed uh, somewhat indefinitely. Suddenly, the, not only that gig, but the entire industry that I'm a part of uh, was was just completely shut down. And, and um, you know, a lot of people uh, were really struggling with that work. So there you were in Connecticut, mm -hmm. your means of income completely taken away. What sort of changes did you have to make to adapt to that new reality? One of the first things I did uh, was I, I needed a project to work on. So I dove in with my collaborator, Janet Rostin, and we thought of the idea of uh, let's uh, let's let's put a video together. Let's put, let's 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 do a video where everybody's recording and and singing and dancing in their own homes, uh, and we can do this as a as a uh, as an encouragement for people to uh, donate money to a charity uh, to help artists. It quickly turned into a connection with the Actors Fund and a connection with the composer and songwriter Mark Shaman. And, and, and we reached out to him and we said, we're really interested in doing a video with You Can't Stop the Beat. Would you give us your permission to do that? And he said, not only do you have my permission, but can I please be involved as well? And we said, well, sure, absolutely, yay. And next thing we knew, we had a video with over 150 different, different performers of all walks of life, professionals, amateurs, people who had been involved with Hairspray, uh, a number of celebrities, uh, all singing along to the the this you know infectious and high energy and fun song and it became this experience of creating joy in the world we raised a lot of money for the actors fund the video has now uh almost two years later uh we're almost up to about three million views it was so fun to have that project to dive into at a time when there was just nothing and ultimately the the house in Connecticut became unsustainable. We were totally isolated. We had not even had the chance to make real friends in the community. I mean, Archer was still still making friends at school and we couldn't get to anybody in New York, um, you know, and it started to to create a, just a, a really difficult environment for everyone. And then it became really clear by the midsummer, nothing was gonna change. Dave, do you want to talk more about the, the houses? In the small town of Pawpaw, Michigan, my maternal family has been there for decades. There are two houses right next door to each other on a little lake uh, that my grandparents built in the 1980s and 90s. And uh, my parents are in one of the house. Uh, I have three sets of aunts and uncles, all within about five minutes drive. Uh, and cousins just a little bit further away. My family jokes that we aren't the entire town of Paw, Paw Michigan, but we are the entire Democratic Party of Paw, Paw Michigan. <laughs> at, at any rate, um, one of these houses was available for someone to live in. Uh, simultaneously, uh, we needed to make a big change uh, to maximize our own resources. And so strangely, going from the suburbs of New York to a, a real rural environment, uh, we actually ended up being less isolated there because we had more contact with family. We'd have eggs from, from aunts and uncles. We'd have bread. We would share food. There's a, there's a vineyard uh, that's part of the family. There were just so many blessings and gifts and the connection with the family and being able to see people and feel so loved and I'm getting really choked up about this, but to feel like people really have your back. And um, 
I just love Dave's family so much. And I'm so grateful to what they did for us and that they let us be really messy and they let us just fall apart for a little while. And how long did you spend in Papa? <laughs> a year. A year. A year. Then came, I think, the most, I don't know if it's the most difficult or challenging, but you want to talk a little bit about getting the call uh, to come back to New York. And then Michelle, uh, about Archer's call back to Los Angeles. And now where you guys are today. Well, I'm trying to remember when it was that I got word uh, that the show was happening. I feel like everything happened within about a four week period around June. Yeah. Yeah. So I got word around that time that the show was back on. We were going to start rehearsals in the new year in January of 2022 for a March opening. And so everything was suddenly happening again. We figured we'd all come back east. Uh, and we were in the midst of planning that when we got word that Archer had been accepted to LA County High School of the Arts. You could have knocked me over with a feather. The end of June, I'm driving to the barn, Caleb is with me, and I get an email. And it's the same email that Caleb got because Caleb graduated from there. Congratulations. <laughs> I don't think I stopped crying for three days. One, what the hell am I gonna do? Two, what's this gonna look like? Oh my gosh, we're gonna be bi-coastal again. And I think the hardest part of this was the obvious decision was right there in front of us. I am, from my perspective, Archer gave up more than any of us. Caleb had his life secure in Boston and he loves Boston. He loves his school, he loves Boston. Arch had been homeschooled for what, about a year? This to me was an anchor for him. I mean, it was one, a dream come true, even if we were in LA. Two, this was his world he was carving out for himself. Where are you guys now and how do you make this? The dream was bi-coastal, right? Let's be bi-coastal. Uh, I don't know that the dream ever included the idea that one of you might be on one coast <laughs> and the other on the other. Yeah, it's a big adjustment and it's and it's it's a, it's a sort of an ironic adjustment after having been uh, uh, you know, cooped up together for all of pandemic in a little house in Michigan and through the the coldest winter that we've ever lived through. Um, going from that to uh, now being completely spread across the con continent, you know, uh, my head's spinning. We knew it was going to be tough to be apart. Uh, we knew it was going to be logistically inconvenient and expensive. Um, uh, but we also knew we had to do this, we, that we had to uh, allow Archer to pursue this great possibility at LAXA. Uh, and we also uh, needed for me to be able to do this gig. So we said, I guess we're doing this version of it. People say, where's home? And I say, it's where my people are. I'm about to go see Dave for a week. And so that's really nice. We depend on each other a lot. We communicate a lot. Um, we haven't hit any hiccups. It's been six weeks that we've been doing this and it's going to be a, a crazy spring. There's a graduation, there's an opening, there's so many things happening between now and summer. We'll be actually spending a lot of time together in the months ahead. Uh, these last couple of months, you know, as a family, uh, we've made sure to prioritize phone time. We, we prioritize time for checking in and purposefully checking in uh, more than we might necessarily purposefully do so if we were all in person together. Is there, and not that there needs to be, um, but is there for either or both of you um, a takeaway? Is it too early to say? It is pretty early to say. I mean, one thing I would say is uh, it's been kind of a motto of ours for a long time that uh, we can do hard things. If for many years was kind of a joke, like, okay, we can do this, we can do hard things. And then 2020 hits and we've got some really hard things, some really hard decisions and some real challenges in terms of, you know, how we make life work. And we held on to that motto 
of of we can do hard things and tried to keep a a, a smile on our face about it and a and a sense of humor about it and for myself i wasn't always successful in both of those things uh but i always tried to come back to it and doing hard things is what we're doing i'm pleased to announce that mr saturday night starring billy crystal is slated to open on broadway later this spring and that michelle has just been accepted into the pasadena rose bowl riders Archer continues his cinema studies at L.A. County High School for the Arts, and Caleb graduates from the Berkeley College of Music this spring. The O-Easts are proof positive that you can't stop the beat. And now, live from their very own living rooms, the actors fun isolation players, and you can't stop the beat. You never know the twists and turns that life will take, especially if you've chosen a career in the arts. Hopefully, you have people around who are willing to lend their support and who are even willing to carry you when you feel like you can't take another step. The Actors Fund is an organization that does just that. It provides stability and resiliency to artists throughout their careers. 
Services provided by your generous donations to the fund include emergency financial assistance, affordable housing, health care and insurance counseling, senior care, secondary career development, and more. For more information about the Actors Fund or to make a tax-deductible donation, go to theactorsfund.org. Welcome back. It's time for dinner and a movie. And I am here in the lounge with my resident culinary cinephile, Ruby Farley. Welcome back. Woohoo! It's good to be here. Glad to have you back. What you been up to? Um Okay, good. That's Doing. about right. <laughs> <laughs> well, so we've got a, a great movie that we're going to discuss, but I thought we would do First is maybe just a quick list. I've had this idea of spring into action. So I thought we'd just make a list of five great action movies that you might check out this month. And we tried to go from all the different eras of cinema. So we're starting with, um, from 1928, uh, Buster Keaton starring in Steamboat Bill. Man, action packed. All of his stunts are performed himself, often insane. <laughs> yeah, this is the one that features the huge hurricane yeah. and the house that house falls, falls on, on him. him. If you look really closely when the house falls on him, you can see it actually hits his arm, and he ended up dislocating his shoulder. And then we're going to flash way, way forward to another one of our favorite movies of all time, uh, 1981's Raiders of the Lost Ark. A perfect action movie, if there ever was one. It's true. Steven Spielberg says that when he looks at Raiders, he goes, yeah, that's the movie I set out to make. And then we move into the 90s. Got to throw Quentin Tarantino into the mix. His masterpiece, Pulp Fiction. Some of the best dialogue, great action sequences. Everything's got a bit of like a comedic edge to it. Very much a dark comedy. Uh, and then we go to the late 90s, early aughts, uh, with one of the great sci-fi action movies of all time, The Matrix. I could believe in The Matrix. Maybe we all are in a jar somewhere. I worked at a church for a while, and the first day I met with the pastor, he walks into the meeting and he sits <laughs> down and he goes, have you seen this movie called The Matrix? I went home after that movie and I, I did a lot of journaling. And finally, a movie that just came out last year, um, which we loved a lot, uh, which owes a big debt to the um, Hong Kong action flicks of, of Jackie Chan. Mm -hmm. But this movie uh, was a Disney movie called Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings. Fantastic action sequences. Every other scene was a great action sequence. It was just, it kept you focused in and interested in the story as well as keeping you on your toes. It's a ton of fun. If you haven't seen it, it's available on Disney Plus right now. Mm -hmm. um, but the movie we want to focus on as we're looking at taking action or not taking action, Shakespeare's great tragedy, Hamlet, Prince of Denmark. You studied this play in school. I did, a while ago. I've been in it three times. Yeah. Fill us in on, on the basic plot of Hamlet, Prince of Denmark. Basically, you get... Hamlet, he's a prince. His father died, and his mother remarried his father's brother. That's already uncomfortable for Hamlet. He's already not happy about this whole situation. And then he is visited by the ghost of his late father, and his late father tells him that he's been murdered by his uncle. But Hamlet, being indecisive as I believe him to be, is like, it's not enough that my father's ghost apparated before me and told me and, and like two of my friends to swear. And then Hamlet just continues to make some questionable decisions on how he's going to figure out whether this has actually happened or not. People are hurt. People die. Most people die because... Hamlet can't make up his damn mind about what he's going to do about the fact that his father was murdered by his uncle. 
So there's Hamlet in a nutshell. (laughs) In a nutshell. There are so many, many versions of Hamlet to choose from. Yes. Uh, The the BBC did some. I thought about Mel Gibson's Hamlet and recommending (laughs) that. It's only two hours long. I've seen it. Short and sweet. They cut it down to its, its bare minimum, but you can't get it. It is not streaming anywhere, so we were unable to but preview it. But you can see the Laurence Olivier. Yes, that's on that HBO Max. also available. It's... I found that to be really pretty. No, yeah, it's... It's pretty. Yeah. And then there's uh, Kenneth Branagh's Hamlet, which, to its credit, is the whole play. Do which... we need to see Kenneth Branagh for that long? A little though? too much Hamlet. A little too much. But the one we settled on was uh, the 1964 version uh, of, a, of the Broadway show right. directed by Sir John Gielgud, one of my favorite actors, mm-hmm. and starring Richard Burton as Hamlet. Who is, I think, out of all of the times that I've seen Hamlet, I think it was the clearest form of the story that I've ever seen. I wholeheartedly agree with you. Everybody on stage seemed to know exactly what they were saying. I find that that's usually the issue with Shakespeare. I really got the journey of Hamlet. Yeah. From his the depressed right. guy in that first scene who right. says, oh, that this too, too solid flesh would right. melt, thaw, and resolve itself into a dew. And then he says, to be or not to yeah. be. All of these speeches are just Hamlet being depressed. Yeah. And angry, too. And that's the thing that I got, too. I think Richard Burton does so well is his insanity of it. Like, the way that it really drives him crazy. He takes his time with it, where you see him from the beginning be more, like, depressed and not know what to do with himself. And then he convinces himself throughout the show that this is what happened. And you watch it go from, is is this my dad? showing up and telling me what's going on to my dad freaking showed up and told me what was going on. I'm taking us all down. The fight scene between him and Laertes was so well choreographed and so intense. Like I wasn't expecting it for a stage play, but it was like, oh shit, I was not expecting it at all. And it just like, it had the passion. It's a wonderful uh, production of Heaven that I'd never seen before. Yeah. Uh, We can't recommend it highly enough. It is available for free on YouTube, uh, 1964's Hamlet, starring Richard Burton. It's a terrific production. To pair Hamlet uh, with a dish, uh, the first thing we both thought of was... A Hamlet. A little tiny... A little tiny ham. Yeah. Hamlet. Uh, which is easy. That's already practically cooked for you. And then we thought... We've got our cheese Danish. Going to make a cheese Danish. What's the trick? Puff pastry. Usually you can find it at your supermarkets in your frozen section with the pie crusts. Some people like to make it themselves. It is a painstaking process. If you want to do it easy peasy, something you can just pick up from the store, just pick up your pre-made puff pastry. And then from there, you're pretty simple. Get an egg wash. So you're going to take an egg and a tablespoon of water and you're going to whisk that up together for your egg wash. And then if you're going to do a cheese danish... A basic cheese danish, you're going to do about um, one package of cream cheese, a squeeze of lemon juice, three tablespoons of sugar, and a little bit of vanilla, and you're going to mix that up in your mixer, and then plop it in the center of your little square puff pastry. Don't spread it out too much, because you don't. when it cooks, it's going gonna, it's gonna to spread out a little bit. And then you're going to take your egg wash, you're going to put the egg wash around the edges where you don't have the cream cheese. Pop that in the oven at 400 degrees for about 20 minutes until it's golden brown, it's risen, and it's nice and puffy and delicious and crisp. And then you're going to take those out of the oven, let them cool, and then you're going to enjoy yourself. And you can put applesauce in there. You could put sure, fresh apples with a little cinnamon and sugar. I know. I personally like some guava and cream cheese. If you want to do that, you could put a little bit of guava on top of that cream cheese. A great Cuban favorite. Delicious. And you could even do a ham and cheese ham and Danish, cheese Danish if you really want to go for the full Hamlet, Hamlet. experience. Mm-hmm. So that's our dinner and a movie for the month of March. Yay! Take action. 
and see the uh, 1964 Broadway stage production of Hamlet, directed by Sir John Gielgud, starring Richard Burton and Hume Cronin, and pair that with the Danish of your choice. Yum. If you're a regular listener to The Lounge, you'll remember that we started the year with a dream rather than a resolution. Because we understand that it takes planning and intention to create sustainable change in our lives. We spent February modifying those dreams by discovering what's holding us back and letting go so we can move forward. And here we are with a clear vision and a lightened load. We're ready to march. And yet, the instruction or the order to march, for me, is fraught. In my days on this earth, I've performed with a lot of groups. I've been in Shakespeare companies, I've been a singing waiter, I've sung in countless choirs and played in countless bands. I've performed in front of audiences of thousands and i performed for less than 10. I love making art with people. Hasn't always been easy, hasn't always been fun, but it's usually been worth it. There is one performing group I chose to be a part of over and over again that still mystifies me. Marching band. I joined a marching band my freshman year in high school, and that meant a trip to marching band camp. Now, I've spoken about my other experience with band camp before, the year between fifth and sixth grade where I had an epiphany where reading music finally made sense to me. That was a life-changing week. Marching band camp was a little more like an S&M retreat for teens, where band camp had consisted mostly of rehearsals in a shady courtyard, concert band in the morning, jazz band in the afternoon, with lots of canoeing and swimming and hiking and snacking and lounging thrown in between. On the first day of marching band camp, we all lined up on a dusty field in a hundred degree heat, and we learned to stand at attention. Middle fingers on the seam of our pants, shoulders back and down, head held high, knees straight but not locked. Don't lock your knees, the conductor and the upperclassmen would scream at us. We found out why when the first trumpet player fell face first into the dirt with the rigidity of a two-by-four and the stomach-churning sound of a 150-pound sack of meat hurled off the back of a truck. I think he broke his nose but it's possible that he just took an ice pack and a Gatorade in the shade, shook it off, and came back for more. Once we'd all learned to stand still without losing consciousness, we began the task of marching up and down the field. The key was to instill in us the glide step, a precise 22 and a half inch stride that rolled so smoothly from heel to toe that the rest of our bodies wouldn't bounce up and down at all. Our phalanx would appear to simply glide smoothly across the field. We practiced with books balanced on our heads, keeping our heads up and our eyes forward. The key to the 22 and a half inch stride was the eight to five, eight steps for every five yards marked on the hot and dusty practice field with white chalk lines. The drummers would mark time and we would count off. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, line. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, line. This is how we spent most of the first day, and the second, and many future rehearsals, marching up and down the field. My feeling about this aspect of marching band is best summed up by this clip from Monty Python's Meaning of Life. Everybody else! quite content to join in with my little scheme of marching up and down the square. Sarge? Yes, Wycliffe, what is it? Well, I'm uh, learning the piano. Learning the piano? Yes, Sarge. And I suppose you want to go and practice, eh? Marching up and down the square, not good enough for you, eh? Well... Right, off you go! What about the rest of you? We went on to learn how to turn to the right and turn to the left and turn all the way around with uniformity and precision. 
we learn to play classic Sousa marches and square versions of popular songs really loudly. If I remember correctly, there was an arrangement of Earth, Wind, and Fire's September that had been run through an arrangement for marching band machine designed to suck all of the playfulness and joy out of any song. And then there were the uniforms. Twelve and a half pounds of polyester that managed somehow to provide in equal measure exactly no protection from the cold and exactly no relief from the sun. The two-foot-tall furry hat called a shako, would balance precariously and uncomfortably on one's head as you marched for miles at a time, intermittently playing your instrument as loudly as you possibly could. Looking back, I find the impact-to-reward ratio of participating in marching band to be almost comically low. You put in so much effort, one literally spends hours learning how to walk, turn right and left, and play lousy music louder than anyone wants to hear it, and your reward is a fleeting glance at a parade? Or the opportunity to sit on metal bleachers in the worst possible clothes every Friday night from late summer to early winter? Why did I do it? Why did I go back and keep doing it year after year? Why did I think it was a good idea to join UCLA's marching band when I was 21 years old? I knew better. I can't tell you what compelled me to keep going back. It's a mystery. To this day, though, I do love the sound of a marching band, and I celebrate the precision and the passion of the folks who are dedicated to this art form and who do it well. The truth of the marching band experience may be that the beginning of any endeavor is rarely glamorous. There's something truly wonderful about belonging to an orchestra or a choir. The chance to be a small part in a larger organism that brings pleasure to others. To be at the center of a sound that can only be made by a large number of people all working together is a powerful feeling. It's worth the time it takes in rehearsal to learn that when the key changes from B-flat to C, you need to play a B-natural or it's going to sound awful. And there's a good possibility it's going to sound awful for a bit until you learn and internalize the roadmap. There is a point in every rehearsal of every play I've ever been in or directed where the actors are just starting to put their scripts down and it's awful to watch. I remember talking to a director about this moment one day after a rehearsal. That was painful, I said, and he replied, This is the time in the rehearsal when we come closest to living out the actor's nightmare, where you're on stage and you have no idea what play you're in. It passes, but yeah, it's painful. Remember the story of the little red hen? The red hen invites all the other animals on the farm to help her plant and grow some wheat. They all turn her down. Later, she invites them to help harvest the grain and grind it into flour. No one wants to help. After that, she invites them to help her make and bake the bread. Everyone is too busy. But once the bread is baked and ready, everyone wants to help eat it. The little red hen is a marcher. She knows that the road to delicious bread is paved with work that no one wants to do. The members of your favorite band are marchers. The shows we go to see and the albums we love to listen to are products of years of unglamorous work, learning to play or sing. Your favorite athletes have done a metric shit ton of marching up and down the square, the diamond, the pitch, or the ice to be able to make it all look easy on a Sunday afternoon. The food we eat is a product of countless marchers who plant, grow, ship, prepare, and serve it to us. You want a beach body? It's time to march. You want to lose 20 pounds? The unglamorous part of that journey starts right now. Writing a novel or a screenplay? It'll be fun when it's done. You'll have a blast watching others enjoy it. It's going to take a lot of marching up and down the square to get there. Truth is, it's worth it to work hard, to achieve something beautiful, productive, or useful. It's worth it to put in the sweaty, lonely hours to feel good about something you've accomplished.
Just know that the most important part of making your dreams come true involves a dedication to do everything necessary to make it happen. Just make sure all of your marching is taking you somewhere you actually want to go. As we spring into action, we want to hear where you're marching to. Find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, or email us at livefromthelounge640 at gmail.com. that's our lounge. We hope we've inspired you to get up and get moving. And if you like what you hear, we hope you'll make a donation to keep this podcast coming to you month after month. Go to livefromtheloungepodcast.com and click on the donate button to make a contribution. Thanks in advance for your generosity. Here's the who did what. Live from the Lounge is produced by Ann Kloss Farley. Matt Almos and Carol Almos write our radio shows Double Batch Daddy wrote and performed Climb That Mountain. John Ballinger composed and performed our theme music. Charles Dayton created the soundscape for The Big Question. And special thanks to our special guests, Michelle East and David O. I'm your host, Keith Farley, and we'll be back in a month or so with another collection of stories, songs, and conversations, all intuitively designed to help you to learn to love to lounge.